Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. So I'm on the missions team, and in May we have missions month, so we kind of talk about, we highlight missions and just have a global perspective on things. And so we've uh, bought a number of these. It's a Muslim world prayer guide. So Ramadan starts um, actually Saturday. And this is a great way, if you want to learn a little bit about what uh, they believe, and then how do we pray for Muslims? So um, I encourage you to uh, pick this up. They're free over on our book table, kind of in the hallway over there. Well, you... You might notice a few people are missing, uh, Pastor Mike, uh, Joe Kaler, uh, Jeff Dryden. The, there's a men's retreat going on right now. They're, they're just about wrapping up uh, out in uh, Grand Junction, Michigan, and we just had a blast. Um, so some of you guys were there. I was there Friday, Saturday. It's just a neat time to connect. Uh, and if you missed it, we'll have another time for us guys on April 1st. And that's not a joke. Um, on April Fool's Day, it's, it's not a joke. Uh, uh, 7 a.m., over at Sawyer on the, and downstairs, we're going to be talking about 2 Timothy. And so if you, if there, what's the homework? If you just read 2 Timothy, there's a little bit more on, the, on our weekly email if you want to find out. But read 2 Timothy. We're going to talk about it. What's he trying to say to us? And it's just a great time, uh, 7 to 9, um, just connecting. And I'd love for you to join me up there. That's uh, April 1st. Pastor Jeff is, is not at the men's retreat. We actually have a, a church that we're closely affiliated with in Three Oaks. Uh, some of you might be from Three Oaks, Real Life uh, Community Church. Rich grew up in our, our church up at Sawyer, um, and uh, he started a church there. It's a small church um, in there, and he got pancreatitis. Uh, and Maybe you've had that before or know people who've had it. So he just had a, a bunch of problems uh, in, internally and can't preach. So last week, Pastor Mike preached for him. This week, Pastor Jeff is, and we might be sending an elder... Um, get ready, elders. <laughs> we might be sending somebody else up there. Uh, Ed, don't worry. Um, I already asked the person so they know who they are, um, yeah, if they're going to be helping. Um, last week, if you heard, um, I didn't listen to the Converge message. Uh, I wasn't here. Actually, I was on vacation with one of my kids doing some sports, uh, and so I couldn't make the message, but I watched it online, and over at Sawyer, Jeff gave an announcement, and we're on YouTube live right now, so uh, while we're here, people are watching online. We had 123 views this last week for our service, for our two services. Um, and that's, you know, more than one person probably watching it. People from all around the world are, are check, tuning in. And Jeff made an announcement uh, that he is retiring at uh, the end of this year. Uh, he's been here, like, I think, 35 years this year. It's amazing. Um, but I, I, I started imagining and thinking about that. What if someone who's watching online, totally making this up, said, hey, I'm going to put my name in there for the senior pastor or this lead pastor position, and they emailed the office. And so uh, they write a cover letter. So I'm going to read this. Again, this is made up. <laughs> to whom it may concern, I heard you're going through a leadership transition. I wanted to put my name out there as a candidate for senior pastor. I've been in the ministry for about a year. Um, I don't have a formal education or degree. However, I've seen God move in powerful ways. I have a gift of teaching and healing. I have even cast out demons. Some may call me charismatic, but I avoid titles or labels most of the time. I have a large platform. I have several interns that follow me around in my ministry, and for the most part, I've been, it's been itinerant. 
uh, moving around a lot. Before preaching, I worked in a trade for over a decade in my family business. I'm single with no children. Southwest Michigan could feel at home with the lake and the rural setting. I enjoy the outdoors and comfortable working indoors. I'm a man for all seasons. I'm a mix between the introvert, extrovert, um, intuitive, perceptive person, the thinker, feeler. I'm flexible, faithful, and up for an adventure. Sincerely. Um, and then see my link for the sermon. Okay, so that's an imagination, imaginative uh, cover letter. We click the link for the sermon. You know, you click that link, and out pops this 13-minute message. That's the whole thing. 13 minutes, really. Um, in the message, you notice a couple things. Uh, he says he's not against the Bible, but he lives it out and fulfills the prophecy in it. He repeats his points and uses powerful word pictures and analogies, but he doesn't tell you any jokes or stories. He doesn't quote any pastor or commentary. He doesn't refer to what does the Greek say or the Hebrews say. There's no three-point application. There's no alliteration, no acronyms. I love those things. Um, he didn't have any children's message or pull out a bulletin. You know, here's the, refer to the bulletin outline. On top of that, he, he dared to call his hearers evil and hypocrites. Um, he said, if you aren't more godly than the religious leaders of the day, you won't get to heaven. And finally, he ends a short message by saying that you are spiritually doomed if you don't hear his message and live it out. Um, how would you respond to that? Okay, I made that up, right? And then let's say there's another link. It clicks to his like, family ancestry, like this family tree. He's like, I'm a Messianic Jew and I'm related to King David. And it, how would you, would you hire this guy? I, I say that kind of in jest because that's how I feel when I read the Sermon on the Mount. It's a 13-minute message, and it's supposed to be the greatest message ever, and you're like, whoa, that's intense. How do you respond to the Sermon on the Mount? How do we respond? That was similar to what, kind of what Jeff was saying last week uh, when we were doing this uh, sermon overview. We're sermon overviewing again, because we're going to hear how they responded. It's a little different than a guy walking in claiming to be the Messiah today, um, which is kind of how I hear it. Uh, because back then, the Messiah was still, they're still looking for him. And there is all these prophecies that are to be fulfilled. In fact, in chapter, chapter 4, no, five, yeah, chapter 4, Jesus has gone around and he's healed all these people. And people are, the masses are following him. And they suffer under an oppression that is not like what we experience here in America. And they, they de they're looking for hope. And I think we understand that. And so the, the air, I was saying this in the Sunday school class I just taught this, this morning. Have you ever been around those power lines, those super big ones, where you start hearing the crackling, even though you're like 40 feet below them? Like the air is electric in expectation for something to happen. And so you hear this guy saying the things that the, a, prophet, a, a prophet or a messiah would say. And, and, they've, and maybe you've, you've had someone in your family healed or you saw this miraculous he, healing. And so there's like a, an openness there where I'm, I'm a little cynical. I'd be a little bit more resistant to kind of hear, you know, what's going on here. Um, there's an openness there. And so it makes a little bit more sense in how the crowd respond. But I want us to look and see how the crowds respond. If you have a Bible, uh, it's good to, you know, have it and kind of look at it for ourselves because I just, you don't just believe me or the words up here, but we will have the words projected up here for the most part. So Matthew chapter 7, um, we've been standing in honor of God's word. So if you want to stand now, 
Um, if you're able, if you can't, that's okay. Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. Just a couple verses, one sentence. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be pleasing to you. You are the king of the universe and yet our spiritual father. And you've created us and you hold us together and you brought us here in this place for a reason. And I pray by the power of your spirit that you'd use the word of God to sharpen us and to encourage us and comfort us and motivate us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, the central theme of Matthew is to follow the promised king into his kingdom. So we see the word kingdom, I think it's 55 times in Matthew. It's a theme. He's, we're, we're following the promised king. Who's that? It's Jesus into his kingdom. And he's, he's unpacking what is the kingdom of God. And so that's the theme. And Matthew begins with, the, in the earliest times, the story of Jesus with his genealogy. He is Jewish. He is the son of David, a son of Abraham. He is the expected Messiah. In chapter 3, we hear about his relative, John. John the Baptist. And he's doing what John the Baptist would do, right? He's baptizing in the wilderness. He's at the River Jordan. He's calling people to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And and Jesus comes and visits his his relative and is baptized by John. Then in in chapter 4, the Holy Spirit has come on Jesus and has led him then into the wilderness, another part of the wilderness where he is fasting. He's not eating for 40 days. And then the devil comes and tempts him three times. And Jesus successfully defeats the temptation of the devil and then begins his ministry. He's traveling around the Galilee and the countryside, uh, teaching in in the synagogues and healing the sick and casting out demons. And then we get to chapter 5 and we hear, what is he teaching? We get a a a, a zoomed-in look at what specifically he's teaching in these chapters. So chapters 5 through 7. It begins with seven qualities of the disciple, the Beatitudes, the spiritual blessings amid earthly suffering. Jesus then gave a mission to his disciples with two images of salt and light in a dark and and decaying world. Then he defines himself. Who is he? He He is different than others. He is different. Um, uh, in opposition to the teaching of, he's not in opposition to the teaching of the Jewish people, but actually a fulfillment of their teaching in the Old Testament. He sets the disciples' goal that the aim is to be more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Uh, and if you're not, you won't enter heaven. The objective is righteousness, rightness with God. Then Jesus moves into what does that actually mean with six general rules people think of when they think of right living and following the law, and it culminates. It kind of, it, it, it kind of uh, it grows and expands into this call to love. What does it mean to follow God? It is to love. To love him, to love others, but here he says, love your enemies. It goes so far as loving your enemies. No, actually, it goes further than that. In Matthew 5, 48, it says, love, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Perfection is the goal, the aim, to be like God himself. Then in chapter 6, instead of laws, it shows what are spiritual practices. When you think of right living, righteousness, what is that? Um, As we look at Ramadan, they have like five things they do, and three of them are mentioned here. It's praying, it's giving, it is fasting. And that's a commonly held understanding of spiritual practices is praying, giving, and fasting. Well, people can do the spiritual things for the wrong reason. And Jesus contrasts doing the spiritual things for the right reason and doing the spiritual things for the wrong reason. And then he talks about um, treasure. There's two treasures. Uh, there's, we can invest for this life, storing up, hoarding, being greedy, worrying, or we can think about the future life, the eternal life, and storing up treasure in heaven. So there's two treasures. And finally, in chapter 7, he discussed how do we relate to each other? How do we relate to one another? How do we relate to God the Father? His instructions are, drive us back to the beginning of his message and to the heart of a disciple, a need for holiness and godliness. In that need, in that discrepancy between the ideal and the real, we find humility and poverty and sorrow and hunger and thirst for rightness, for purity, for mercy. The sermon concludes with several contrasting. Those who are hearing what he's saying They're picking up what he's putting down, as people say, and those who don't. Those who are hearing it and applying it, and those who are hearing it and just chucking it. A number of people have written um, really great things about the Sermon on the Mount, and so I thought, I'm going to Google that. So I Googled a couple, and here's here's what one one author I like, Philip Yancey, he's an older author, has written uh, about grace and about Jesus, and this is what he said thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers. Reminds me of little kids. Adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters. We are all desperate. And that is, in fact, the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. I love that. That safety net of absolute grace. That's how he sums up the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Oswald Chambers, when I was a kid, I read My Utmost for His Highest. So there's different devotionals people passed around and that's a little older language, but it was wonderful. And he, he wrote this in the early 20th century. He wrote, the Sermon on the Mount is not a set of rules and regulations. It's a picture of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is having his unhindered way in us. What would happen if we lived out the Sermon on the Mount? It would be beautiful. It'd be amazing. Uh, In fact, uh, a non-religious expert, you know, uh, the President of the United States, um, one that uh, you might not think of, wrote this uh, about it. This is Harry S. Truman um, in the 1950s. Um, He wrote this, I do not believe there's a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty neat. How do we respond to the Sermon on the Mount? Do we, do we take that kind of cynical stance? Are we offended, you know? Are we like, uh, I don't get it? Pastor Jeff talked about it last week. Did you, did, and I don't know if you put this call out there. At Sawyer, he said this. Did you take a few minutes to think about it? And what is God saying to you? 
I was on vacation. I didn't. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't. There's mercy, and there's an opportunity. There's opportunity for us now to think through what is God, by the power of the Spirit, saying through this word, the word of the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters. We don't need to let that moment slip away. So let's look a little closely, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. This is one like super long sentence. Um, in my Sunday school class, we, I had some kids, they diagrammed it for me. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Um, there's structure here. There's some organization here. And so if you're taking notes, uh, I, I broke it down into three parts. There's the occasion, the, the reaction, and then the reason. The occasion, the reaction, and reason. And we'll spend most of the time on the reaction and reason. Um, the, the, the point here is Jesus is unlike any other teacher. I think that's what he's trying to say. That Jesus, Matthew is, is wanting us to, under, to get, this, this is a different kind of teacher. This isn't your normal, normal run-of-the-mill kind of guy. This is a different kind of teacher. And, and, and the teaching has a power to it that brings us back to the beginning where we are in desperate need. We are desperate people in need of that safety net of grace. The Beatitudes. Humility, poverty, sorrow, mercy. We need mercy. We need God's purity. We need his rightness. In regards to reaction, how do they react? They're, they're astonished, right? You see that in, in these verses? They're astonished. So what I wanted to do is look at how does Matthew use the word astonish? And he uses it three times. He uses it in chapter 13, chapter, chapter 19, and chapter 22. So this is the one we'll look at, chapter 13, in detail. Chapter 13, verse 53. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there. We'll go back to chapter 7, but chapter 13, it's, he's in Nazareth. So he moves from here to Nazareth. This is his hometown. You might remember that. He grew up in this town. Maybe you grew up in New Buffalo. You know, this is my hometown. He goes back to his hometown. And this is what happens. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Jesus is doing mighty works. He's speaking, teaching in their synagogue so that these cities had little church things in the Jewish culture called synagogues. He's teaching there. And they were astonished. They're surprised. Here's a local who is teaching not like a local. Not like the low-class, uneducated, inexperienced man they thought they knew. And then, then we see this word again in Matthew chapter 19. He encounters a rich young ruler. He asks, this rich young ruler asks him, hey, how do we get to heaven? I want to get to heaven. You might remember this. And Jesus says, well, you obey the Bible, basically. Obey the Old Testament. Obey the, you know, the, the law. He's like, I, I did that. He's like, well, you have one more, one more law. To, remember this one? Go, go sell everything you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. Whoa! How, how does he respond? I mean, how he responds to that, that's like a missed opportunity, right? We wouldn't do that. And then, then the disciples, I think, are shocked at this point. And he's like, he turns to them and he says, um, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of like a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. 
kind of pointing at the heart. He's done all these things, but when it comes to this thing he's treasuring, he can't give that up to the authority of Jesus, to give that to the rule and reign of Jesus. Part of me thinks, man, what would, what would I do that? Would I be able to do that? You think about that thing I treasure, would I be able to give it up? I've done that every, one, every once in a while. I think, well, can I give it up? And sometimes I'm like, I can't give it up. That's so hard. I don't think I could do it. I think it's a good kind of test of where, where we're at. But another part of me thinks, wow, like here's an opportunity, an invitation. He could be the 13th disciple. Wouldn't that be cool? He could see Jesus firsthand. He could be with him. Wouldn't that be neat? The disciples, they hear Jesus's like, thing about the camel and the eye of the needle, and they're astonished. They're astonished. We, we see this word again in chapter 22. Jesus went to Jerusalem, and there he's teaching. So the parables, we said, I said that word before. Parables are like a story that have a point. He's teaching in parables, and the Pharisees and the Herodians are there, and they're trying to trap him. They don't like this guy. They don't like Jesus. Um, they heard what he said, they, they saw his works, and they don't like him. And so they want to ask him about taxes. You remember this? We're getting to tax season here. And, and so he's like, so, you know, what do you think about taxes? It's going to give you money to the evil Roman Empire. You know, what do you do with that? So he's like, well, well show me, do you have a coin? Bring out a coin. So, you, so, you, so oh, here's a coin. Whose picture's on it, right? Caesar, right? You remember that, Caesar. So he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. They're like, whoa. How do they respond? What's the word they use? It's a trick question. I'm, I'm just trying to trick you. It's not astonish. It's marvel, and that's a different Greek word, but it's still kind of that same reaction. But they do use the word astonish in the next trap. So the next trap you have. So the, the Herodians and the Pharisees fail, you know, to kind of get Jesus. So Sadducees are a different kind of political group out there, kind of religious group, and they're like, we got him. And so they say, here's a story. There's a guy married to this gal, and he's got like six brothers, and the guy dies. In the culture at the time, the next brother in line has to marry the sister-in-law. Okay? He dies. Then the next one, then the next one, the next one. In heaven, who's married? They got him. It's the gotcha moment. And then, um, and, and you might, you, I was thinking actually the question they could have asked is like, you know, is she guilty or not? Did she kill, did she knock off all these guys or not? So is this like, but no, they're trying to trap him spiritually because theologically, they don't think in heaven, like we, we rise. We don't go to heaven. We kind of just die. That's my, my understanding. They don't believe in the resurrection. Um, so Jesus, he references the Old Testament. He says, God is the God of the living, not the dead. And references Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. And marriage isn't in heaven. And it was like a table turn, mic drop, and the crowds heard his response, and they understood what was going on, and they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. Um, so he can flip the script. He can, he can speak in ways that just boggle our minds. In Galilee, Nazareth, Jerusalem, in the inner circle, in the, in the crowds, people are watching him, and they're like, what is going on? This isn't like our normal teaching. They're astonished. Other translations, maybe it's one you have, says amazed. It's the same word. Just a, it's a thesaurus, you know? It's like, okay, it was a different word. Uh, astound, um, overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by it. Uh, why? 
Well, go back to chapter 7, look at verses 28 and 29. It says this. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority. He was authoritatively communicating, teaching. He had authority. So we looked at this word astonished. I thought it'd be neat to look at the word authority. And we see it in chapters 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10, and chapter 28. In chapter 9, or chapter 8, this next chapter, he goes to a town called Capernaum. Um, there's a man there, a, a Roman centurion. Okay, so Jesus is there, he's Jewish, and really this is centered around Jewish people. A Roman centurion comes to him. He has a slave who is recently paralyzed. He hears Jesus is a healer. He wants his slave well. He goes to Jesus, heal my servant. Heal, heal my servant. Can you heal my servant? This is, what, this is his appeal. Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He understood what Jesus could do with a simple word. And Jesus agrees, and Jesus heals, the soldier's correct. Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. He can make the lame walk. He can give sight to the blind. He can stop bleeding, chronic bleeding for, that's been happening for decades. And he can raise the dead with a single word. He has authority. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9, we see it again. Um, Jesus could heal the sick. And he had authority not only to do that, but to forgive sins. No, every one of you can forgive sins. Did you know that? You can forgive sins. You can forgive sins that have been done to you. You have that authority, that ability. Jesus has authority that goes beyond that. He has the ability to forgive sins that were done against God. Why? Because he is the son of God. He has authority to forgive sins. Matthew 9, 6 through 7. Chapter 10. He has these, I said, interns in this kind of fake cover letter. He has these disciples who are with him. These people, groupies, people who are following him around. And he sends them out with the authority to heal and cast out demons. And he has authority to hand out, to share, to delegate his authority. And then we get to the end of the book, chapter 8, 28, verse 18. And it says this, look at this verse, and we have it projected here. All authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, who's him, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He had and still has all authority. He hasn't changed, and he continues to have authority uh, over heaven and over earth, over you and over me. He has authority over this moment. And, and this reality of his authority has shocked the crowd in chapter 7. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was astonished. Words astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. He taught unlike the religious leaders of the day. He spoke it clearly and definitively. 
So where in the Sermon on the Mount do you see his authority? There's a number of places. Uh, there's actually in chapter 5, I found, found this, verse 17, 20, 22, 26, 28, 32, 34, 39, 44. He's saying, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you. Say nine times, but I say to you. This type of authoritative messaging stands out just like how the, the trees and the snow just, it pops th- this morning. I mean, it's just amazing. Or the full moon earlier this week. It, was just, it just stands out and, as, as a beacon of this is unlike anything they've ever heard or experienced. Where do you see authority in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he draws hard lines. He calls people out. I, I, and it makes it people a little uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, you know, if it was just like one person, it'd be like, I hope this person really listens to this message. You know, you kind of think of that other person, but, it, but he turns around and he, like, he gets you. You know, it's like a, a bird shot. It just kind of gets everywhere. You know, everybody's implicated. Um, and he goes so far that on Judgment Day, people are going to call him Lord. Who is that? And he will tell some to depart from him, workers of lawlessness. He put his words and himself in the center of his message. Why? Here's the ideal. We don't meet it. It drives us back to chapter 5, the beginning. It drives us back to the Beatitudes. Why? He does meet it. He fulfills his own law, God's law. He is our hope and our help. Does he astound you? Does he amaze you? Does he overwhelm you? Think about that. And then is that enough? What happens when the revival's done? Do we just go back on living and doing what we always do? Or are we transformed by the power and the authority of Jesus? These crowds, what happened to them? They're amazed. And they follow him the next day. They, if you look at chapter 8, they go. They keep following him. Where are they when he's hanging on the tree? Consider the astonished crowds in Nazareth. Chapter 13, verse 53, it says, And when Jesus finished these parables, I'll just read it again, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he didn't do mighty works there because of their unbelief. They were astonished but they were also offended. They were astonished and they didn't believe. Hmm. I think the authority of Jesus can be a front, an affront to our autonomy. Why did the Pharisees want to kill this guy? He didn't do anything wrong. What's their beef? What's their problem? The authority of Jesus can bump up against our desire for autonomy. Do we want to be led? 
Or do you want to lead? Do you want to follow? Or have people follow us? Do we want to obey? Or want to be obeyed? I think that the challenge here is Jesus' authority can't just be one that we're amazed at. Remember last week as we read in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And on the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on, the, on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rains fell and the flood came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Are we willing to be shaped today by Jesus? Are we willing to, be, to let our, his authority work its way into our lives so that the compartments of our lives, the different facets, the different relationships, the different scenarios that we face are... Is he the authority or are we going to be the authority? I think there's mercy here. Where's the house built? We want to be hearers, we want to be doers, but the house is built where? In that story, it's built on the rock. Who is the rock? The rock is Jesus. How do we hear him? He invites us into a relationship with the Father, and it's through him and through our response to his words. Here's a test for you, a, a kind of like a, a diagnostic. You know, in different occupations, there's like these different diodes and testing things we might use. A diagnostic test for you is, where do you feel resistance in your life to the authority of Jesus? And then you can think through the categories that are in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to be spiritually healthy, a spiritually healthy person. Um, it's good to be healthy in lots of different ways, but spiritually healthy. Um, and not all of us can attend the retreats that we have for a variety of reasons, health reasons, scheduling. But we have a moment right now where we can do a diagnostic test and kind of assess, are we open to God overcoming that resistance in our lives? He speaks to our pride and asks us to be humble. Maybe pride is that area where there's just resistance and maybe God might break through and create a a humility in us that's, that's new. Maybe we a, 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 tend to be an angry person and um, have a beef about everything. And God wants to break through and create a charity, uh, a peacefulness in us where his authority is over the world and we can give up that sense of control or frustration at not having control. Maybe we just, the way we view men and women, we have a, a, a lustful, greedy, self-centered way of looking at people and transactional and, and, and he wants to break through and have authority on how we view men and women, whether it's online or whether it's in, in person. Maybe his authority is calling us and inviting us to a love, a charity towards one another, that it, whether it's in the family relationship, which can be really hard, right? Um, or a work relationship um, or, or elsewhere to, to love maybe even the person who's um, sinned against us, our, our enemy, if you will. Love your enemy. Maybe the authority of Jesus is, is calling us to a new kind of prayer life, a, a, a new kind of way of viewing money and possessions. The, we're just stewards of the gifts that he's given, and we don't need to mass huge amounts 
for this extra insurance safety net, our safety net is God, and, and how can I steward these resources? And, or maybe it's our priorities. Maybe he's asking us, he wants to have authority over our to-do list. What does that look like? Maybe it's the, the challenge for us as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is anxiety and, and worry, and we're just a worried, anxious person. And the Lord wants to say, I, have, I care for the lilies. I care for the birds. I care for you. Will you let me care for you? And hand over that authority to Jesus. Maybe how we, we need to see his authority over how we treat one another. Treating others as we want to be treated. Viewing others as we want to be viewed. and Treating the, the Father as our Father. Um, not as a servant of us. And where do we need to submit to Jesus' authority? I think there, in a message like this, there could be a tendency to see a shortcoming, that discrepancy between ideal and real. And, and What do I do? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, to the, the Beatitudes, the, the blessings of being humble and poor in spirit and hungering and thirsting for the rightness that God provides. In, in Romans chapter 5, it says this, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, the reason we're right with God on a legal basis is because of what Jesus has done. He's fulfilled the law entirely, and his rightness is upon us. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, may we pause now and consider where the ideal is and where Jesus' authority could grow and expand in our life. And let's give that over to God quietly in our hearts. And then I'll close us in prayer. Lord, King of the universe, you are strong and mighty. You said you love the world, so you sent your Son. He is perfect, tempted in every way yet without sin. Lord, we have sinned. We have fallen short of the ideal. Lord, we don't even know what that looks like at times. And I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit that in my brothers and sisters that you'd work your way and you'd transform our hearts and that you'd shape our lives so that when people see us, they see your Son. That you would get glory in this church, in this body of believers, in these people who, myself included, who want to follow you, Lord. Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you've given us your word to encourage us, and that we have uh, the friendship here to sing praises to you, to hear from you, and to respond to you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.